0: Why the Baby Boomers Rule American Politics, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. While a diverse generation of young Americans stands ready to change our politics and culture, our congressional leadership and presidential options remain geriatric. And this isn't just an age gap. The Baby Boomer generation has maintained extraordinary power and influence throughout its life course. How did the Boomers take power? And are any of the following generations likely to emerge as a counterweight anytime soon? This week, I talk with Kevin Munger of Penn State University about his new Columbia book, The Generation Gap, Why the Boomers Still Dominate American Politics and Culture. He argues that generational conflict is inevitable, as the baby boomers retire but maintain their political influence against a much more diverse, less religious, and liberal rising generation. The institutions boomers built are losing credibility, but that doesn't mean we should expect their power to wane. Here's our conversation which started with a summary of his concept of boomer ballast.
1: Part of the angle of the book is that there are a lot of things going on generationally right now and in terms of age. So I try to condense all of that into a single phrase, which is boomer ballast. So the argument is essentially that today the baby boomer generation is distinctly powerful as a generation and as a group of older people. So, this combines multiple causes. And so I don't have a clean causal story. That's sort of why I had to turn this into a book rather than a paper. But generations are generally not taken seriously, I I feel like, and I wanted to demonstrate A, that yes, generations are an important organizing group identity in American politics today. And B, that the baby boomers are the unique generation in American history.
0: So tell us about how the book uh, came to be and maybe how it evolved from the plans uh, and your your previous work on media, social media, and and change over time. Right. So I did not set out to study this.
1: The fact was that in 2016, the world of digital political communication changed dramatically. There's a big emphasis on studying misinformation, fake news, and a consistent finding from this research was that older people were much more likely to have been exposed to and share misinformation. And that was the first step on the journey towards this book. Second, I was doing some research uh, trying to probe how people evaluate clickbait headlines and other types of digital media in the context of a survey. Uh, A standard method is to use an online survey to recruit subjects and run survey experiments. But I was noticing that when I asked people to open a new tab during the survey and then come back and do, so like, look up a piece of information on the internet and return to the survey, there was massive attrition differential in age. So older people were much more likely to simply stop taking the survey at that point. And I wanted to find out why. This led me to the theory of digital literacy that there are ways in which we learn how to use the internet and to navigate the online information environment, which are very different in generational terms in the US today. So that was the connection between my digital media work and uh, this book. And ultimately, as I kept digging, it seemed like this was a a really important topic, certainly something that is uh, connected to digital media in terms of who uses what type of media um, and, and media more broadly in the US today. And I ultimately decided, yeah, I can't do this in a paper, so I'm going to write a book.
0: So generations, especially with the the named generations like the boomers and millennials, uh, tend to be uh, brought up by marketing consultants and uh, people outside of social science and tend to have uh, not as much uh, respect within uh, social science, especially the idea that there's some sort of cutoff at some sort of uh, birth date. So convince us that uh, this is a a social science uh, phenomenon and uh, give us a sense of when a generation uh, really does become real as a social and political actor. Right. So the fact is that
1: this is a very zeitgeisty idea. Certainly in pop culture, people love to talk about millennials. And if you look at the Google I do a track of Google uh, trends searches over time, quite clearly the discussion of millennials starts in about 2014. And then a few years after that, we start seeing a kind of response and people discussing boomers. Um, but so it's clearly in the air. And I think that in fact it is so popular that it has trivialized any discussion of generations when in fact it is a real phenomenon. So the topic was introduced in a, a very coherent way with the legendary sociologist, Karl Mannheim, who wrote uh, a paper on the problem of generations, which spawned a lot of research on this, but this was back in the early 20th century, 1906, I think. And so it is has been a topic of academic research and social science for a long time, even going back to Auguste Comte, the founder of positivism was very interested in the way in which generational replacement determined the rate of progress in a society. So it is a real social phenomenon, and it is especially important in the US today precisely because of the baby boomer generation. So in terms of emphasizing its uniqueness, it is the only generation that is designated by the census as such. And uh, a point I try to bring up as often as possible, the entire generation was awarded the Time Person of the Year Award in 1967 uh as the inheritors right so they were inheriting a uniquely prosperous and free world and the time magazine gave them their famous person of the year award just for being born so this fact is obscured by the intergenerational sniping and the jokes about millennials uh you know avocado toast.
0: But a lot of the sociological research that does try to take seriously uh, period and age effects as well as cohort effects finds more period and age effects than than cohort effects. Um, and uh, that, that does talk about cohort effects doesn't usually sort of have some sort of direct matchup with uh, the popularly conceived uh, generations and often finds much, many more micro generations, especially in, in politics um, so I guess convince us that not just generations in general but that these particular generations are meaningful and if so how did they become so
1: so this is a, a very fair point which is that these would not be the places that if we had to look back actually where are where the lines should be drawn so I think the most compelling analysis from a kind of hard-nosed quantitative political scientist who's skeptical of all this nonsense perspective is a uh, uh, paper by Andrew Gelman, which looks at the effect of the presidential approval ratings when young people are coming of age and seeing how this leaves a permanent trace on their partisanship that persists throughout the life cycle. And clearly there are micro generations that he and his co-author identify, which do not line up with the generations that are imposed by the census and then by the Pew Research Center but which demonstrate that these uh, cohort effects are a real thing in determining partisanship, which is the bedrock of American political behavior. So I think that the case for generations now is the United States, and the case for these specific generations has to come from media. So the generations are indeed imposed by advertisers and by researchers who are trying to make sense of large pop culture trends, but those are also extremely powerful forces in our society. These are not acting outside of society they are feeding back into the society the categories that they impose on it and people internalize them and use them as a source of identity so i think we can look at for example differential rates among people today who are identifying with their birth generation and it varies a lot the baby boomers are much more likely people sorry people who are born in the age range which typically define the baby boom generation are much more likely when prompted to say, I am a baby boomer than are Gen X or uh, millennials. Millennials are actually considerably higher than Gen X. Gen X is a a low point of generational identification and so much else. And the Gen Z is actually the highest. And it's hard to say, of course, uh, because of the age period problem you point out, but it does seem that there's a coherent story to be told about the media that is affecting how people identify with their generation.
0: So we also have, of course, big changes in the population of who, who is in these generations. Uh, you you discussed the racial composition differences, which are very different. Of course, there's also education and religion and changes like that. So to what extent is uh, sort of the social changes that um, are coming first to the youngest generations sort of responsible for uh, these generational differences? So this is the classic
1: age period cohort problem. And I don't I'm not really able to answer it in this book, and I, in fact, I don't try to. The one case in which I do is uh, when it comes to the composition of members of Congress. So here, it's we're very easy to see changing age patterns among uh, members of the House and, and Senate. Both of them are older than ever before, and we can see that there's a clear generational story. Although bracketing that briefly, it really is the people born between, during World War II who are the most unique. Uh, generation. So it's, it's the people born between 1940 and 1950, basically, that stand out in terms of their access to power today. So I am not trying to solve the age period cohort problem other than that case. And this is because I actually don't think it's the most interesting thing we could do. So what I'm trying to say, and, and the reason why I have to write a book and abandon my usual method of identifying a single causal effect, is to say that there are many different causes many of which are uncorrelated, some of which are correlated, but still distinct, that are causing the current effect, which is boomer ballast, which is the disproportionate control of demography, the economy, housing, political power, and the media that a single generation holds today. And I'm trying to say that this is the effect and that what is the effect of that? What is the cause of that effect? Sorry, what does co- boomer ballast do? It has occurred for, let's say, basically random reasons. We can point to different mechanisms that are all pointing in the same direction. I'm not able to tease out the different magnitude of those causes. And frankly, when it comes to how just historicist this argument is, I don't think that it's trivial to generalize this to any other period or even location. So the point is to identify the fact that American politics is different now than it was before. Boomer ballast is a way to think about it, and then think through how that is going to affect American politics in other ways.
0: So one um, big difference in the age groups is participation. uh, And of course, that stands out a lot in midterm years, uh, like the one we're speaking in. Uh, There there was a lot of discussion recently um, that the young generation was going to be a little more mobilized uh, and much more democratic. Um, uh, But certainly in 2018, there was a a surge in turnout overall that um, uh, led to more young people voting. but is there any sign that that's likely to continue into, into 2022? Um, and does the, do the patterns that we're seeing under uh, Trump and Biden at all kind of disrupt, uh, sh- should they disrupt people's view of generational change is likely to, to lead us into a uh, democratic direction as more young people age into voting?
1: So this is a longstanding dream of to get the young people more involved in politics, but both in terms of the age story is very consistent and there is a consistent cohort effect where each new cohort is less likely to vote than the one that came before it, even holding age constant. So we do have some APC analysis. But the uptick in 2018, I think, is not likely to continue in 2022. I think that there is very little effort on behalf of uh, either party, but especially the Democrats, to appeal to the young base. And the fact of the uniquely old politicians involved makes this just on its face not an easy argument to make so i do think that youth alienation from the political institutions and even the act of voting is downstream of how non-represented they feel and i think that the fact that they do identify as a generation and that this is a clear gap on every dimension from the people in power makes it less likely that they can actually get excited about the prospect of, let's say in 2024, voting for the oldest president again against the second oldest president, right? It just is not relatable to their experience of the world at all.
0: So that sounds like we're underrepresented, so we're not going to <laughs> make efforts to increase our representation. Uh, I mean, is there is there a way out of that uh, if uh, if that is the, the pattern and that pattern continues?
1: So I think here's here the comparative case is helpful, which is to say that I do blame the two-party system considerably for this problem. Uh, in many other parliamentary democracies in Europe, you have a third party, which is much more youth-focused. So... In much of Europe, we have a Green Party, where there are young candidates who are able to get involved early on, and this kickstarts a virtuous cycle of youth political participation. The issues they care about are represented, the people doing the representing are relatable to them in how they see the world and experience things, and the existence of the party and getting a toehold in parliament allows them to build up organizational capacity, build up the habit of participation in more serious ways, like... Uh, mobilizing and being party organizers. And just none of that is, ha- is possible for young uh, members of the two parties in the U.S. Uh, if you are just really, really into electoral politics, sure, you can go and be a member of the College Democrats. But then after that, most people kind of fall out of any kind of organizational drive within this two-party system, which is so far removed from how they see the world and the issues they care about.
0: So you also have a chapter on uh, culture, where we incorporate things like uh, Christmas music and aging movie stars. Uh, so how how is that related uh, to, to this argument and, and what does it show? We've been talking about all these kind of political system uh, characteristics, but it seems like the, the the boomer ballast extends beyond the political system. Indeed. So this is
1: another comparative case. So the institutions in the United States, which are more flexible, and in large part, this means more adaptable to the internet and social media allow boomer ballots to play out very differently than the unflexible institutions like the two-party system or academia or law schools or uh, things where there's a law against having any kind of novel competition right so doctors lawyers professors the the youth cannot create alternative versions of these institutions but in the media thanks to the proliferation of digital media technology Young people are increasingly creating media for, by, and about themselves. So we can trace in the mainstream media, which we still think of as the mainstream media, but which is increasingly simply the media of the band of boomers, we see changing patterns in what is being produced, which I argue, as part of my larger theory, that in today's digital media economy, demand often creates its own supply because producers of media are so able to measure audience demand, we're seeing that the average age of movie stars is going up. Right? And so the, the point to individual cases is, is quite clear. All of the remakes and sequels that uh, dominate the, the movie plexus today involve the exact same actors as who were in the uh, movies of the Baby Boomers youth. So if Tom Cruise is kind of the younger but like boomer actor par excellence and then there's a sequel which is the the new top gun movie he's still playing the same character he is still himself we cannot have another new movie star in this media ecosystem the level of tom cruise until the amount of demand for tom cruise in in particular because of the life cycle experiences of baby boomers and their disproportionate economic and free time power, we can't have new generations of movie stars stepping into that, that place. And so that's just one area where it's easy to measure, right? There's like lots of good data about who's in what movies over time. And so I can, I can actually do this, but if we look at who occupies the primary slots in cable news, for example, or many of the other mainstream uh, media outlets, they tend to be quite old as well. And there's just not a case to be made for younger millennials who want to get involved in the system to try to work their way through the system, given that there's the opportunity for them to go and make their own YouTube channel where they can speak directly to their audience, find out what their audience wants and gives them that in idiom, which is quite distinct from mainstream broadcast news.
0: So you uh, also look at the extent to which uh, people actually identify with their generation um, and you find it's sort of boomers first, millennials second. So why is that and what impact uh, does that have?
1: So this goes back to the Mannheim theory of generation and it has to do with the idea of a shared location. And so there's people who are born at the same time who experience the world in a similar way which gives rise to the idea of a generation and people conceiving of themselves as such. So the boomers are, uh, again, a historical anomaly in terms of the world they inherited being very different from the world that came before and from basically any other uh, world we've ever experienced in terms of broad-based economic growth, uh, new media technology, broadcast media, which tends to centralize people and bring them together, and the experience of going to college and university as a catalyst for many people in this generation. Um, For millennials, the story is similar but different. The fact in this case seems to be a bit of a, uh, it was forced upon them. The fact of the baby boom boomer ballast itself is what created the millennial generation precisely because the standard age-based story of older people complaining about younger people Precisely because there were so many older people and they were so dominant in the media and cultural spheres, this produces the large-scale interest in millennials as such, which then increases millennials' sense of self-identification. I think that's actually a different mechanism that's going on with Gen Z, which has more to do with the fact that this is the first generation which is raised primarily on media that is created for, by, and about themselves. So there's this distinct break in the intergenerational transmission of values and uh, norms and everything that social media represents and the fact that gen z is using social media from a very young age means that the long-standing mass media processes of acculturation and socialization into existing cultural forms is broken and this means that what gen z is just like a radically could be radically different from what came before in a way that was not possible in a different media technology regime.
0: Uh, you also asked the generations about the, the issues of concern to them. Um, and that it's actually sort of Gen Z that stands out here as um, kind of meeting the, uh, the stereotype of what young people are concerned about—climate um, and education—more uh, than the the millennials. So, have we sort of misjudged uh, what <laughs> that 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 split versus the broader age uh, split?
1: I do think this breaks down the fact of the imposed categories. Uh, I, I think that it's much more likely that younger millennials are more similar to Gen Z, and we see this in the cultural discourse—the idea of younger millennials having a lot more in common with Gen Z, and that there's It makes sense to categorize them in the same way um, if we were doing so inductively. Um, But indeed, they really care about climate change and college student loan debt and um, increasingly mental health and even uh, gun control. So these issues are very different from the issues that are the most important according to older people who are more concerned about, as you'd expect, uh, Medicare, Social Security, uh, healthcare more generally.
0: Uh, and Gen X uh, stands out for having low generational consciousness. Um, the funny thing about that is that you would predict that from the stereotypes of Generation X potentially that they would uh, have mixed feelings about, about this. So how how, would you, uh, how should we uh, see, see that generation? Well,
1: I go out of my way to make fun of them as often as I can, largely because so many of my slightly older colleagues are Gen X. And in fact, they and many other uh, people I've encountered on Twitter, uh, feel quite aggrieved about being left out of this conversation. But the cultural narrative you're describing is not irrelevant. I think it is less important though than the simple demography that there are very, there are many many fewer Gen Xers than there are either millennials or baby boomers. And that keeps coming back to the importance of demography as a driver of American politics which is deeply underappreciated. So we like to think about things that have a policy solution or which we can talk about in an interesting way. But the facts of demography are determined by decisions and random chance from decades ago. There's nothing we can do about them. There's no interesting takes to be had. And yet a country is people. And the people that we have are divided according to age in a particular pattern. This affects everything from future uh, birth rates to uh, how the economy is more dynamic or less dynamic to how politics, because of the standard... Age-based voter turnout is either focused on the young or the old. So I think that just focusing on raw demography as a, draw, a cause of many things is underappreciated, um, largely because we like to focus on things where cause and effect are temporally quite close, but here cause and effect are decades apart.
0: So this, this should mean we can predict things better that are going to happen a long time in the future, and that prediction should be... The millennials will take over and everyone else will be aggrieved because the birth rates have fallen since the the millennials. What do you think? So here is
1: where the different mechanisms cut in different directions, right? So it is true that demography is an important way in which millennials have an advantage over other generations. But if we look at the other things on which boomers have advantages, which compounded their demographic power, including economic power and control of major institutions, millennials are lagging behind badly on these. And I think this is a common increasingly common among my specific generation, people early thirties. The housing situation in major cities uh is just unbelievable, and it is a serious impediment to how we think about how our lives should go and um it doesn't seem like it's going to change anytime soon. So this issue, which seems like a local issue, uh, is in fact for many millennials in my milieu, the defining problem in society today. And so this is the kind of thing which means that in, millennials will be a powerful force, but the way in which these different advantages compounded for the boomers will not obtain for the millennials.
0: So walk us through those mechanisms. Why? Well, first of all, just the breadth, uh, the level of overrepresentation of the baby boomers in politics, and then walk us through some of the mechanisms for it.
1: Right. So the demography is first then the broad-based economic growth, which allows them to enter into the process of developing themselves however they want. And then I think it's the control of many of the major institutions. So the golden age of higher education was the mid to late 60s. Many people who are still running our universities today uh, got their PhDs during that time and came into the best job market for PhDs ever and so they're still sort of sticking around um many boomers were able to start this process of buying a house and accumulating wealth early on and they're doing well off as a result and the demographic weight and these other political and economic advantages played out throughout their life cycle to give them various specific political wins uh for example the uh, constitutional amendment, which lowered the voting age to 18, happened for the baby boomers. So this kickstarted the political socialization process for people who were between 18 and 21, and it happened because of the political demographic power of young people who at the time were baby boomers. That's just one example. I think another important example is the 2008 financial crisis, where the government invested trillions in quantitative easing as a way to deal with the financial crisis, they could have injected that money anywhere into the economy. They chose to do it propping up mortgages for houses, which were disproportionately owned by baby boomers. So there are a variety of political reasons why they chose to do it this way. But the fact of the political power of the boomers and that this is politically consequential to give them government um, goodies uh, is, is compounding their advantage throughout their life cycle.
0: So you uh, look at the support for young and old candidates, um, and you find uh, some evidence that generational consciousness is is related. Um, but to me, it didn't seem quite as uh, strong uh, evidence that we're sort of in a generational polarization on the basis of generations. So we have this okay boomer idea that there is uh, people have consciousness of their generations, and not just their own, but in in relationship to another. Um, in, in related to this debate that is often dismissed as a very online, uh, uh, get conversation. Um, so that, that might be part of the generational dispute. So I guess to, to what extent do people see it as, uh, generational polarization and the generational dispute? Um, and, and how did you, how did you interpret your, your evidence on support for young candidates, young and old candidates or young and old prioritizing candidates in that light?
1: So, uh, yeah, I have a survey experiment which is looking at whether or not young or old people have a preference for co-generationalists and for people who prioritize issues related to their generation in particular. There are significant effects on average. I, they're not huge, as you say, but uh, this is a kind of hypothetical case. And when we go to the real world example of the Democratic primary, uh, there were gigantic differences in which candidate people voted for based on age. In fact, the term generation gap refers to the period in the 60s when young people and older people had different political preferences. But those differences are clearly larger now in terms of both the Republican-Democrat divide and much more starkly within the Democratic Party, the generational divide. I actually think this point is somewhat missed. Uh, Going back to the Republican primary in 2016, so epochal, um, but before Trump had the whole thing locked up, there was a similar generational divide where Cruz and Rubio won a much higher percentage of votes from younger people than did Trump. Uh, Trump wrapped it up quicker. So the overall average in the primary, there's not a big age breakdown. But I think this exists in both parties and in the Republican Party, other factors have swamped the generational competition angle. But in the Democratic Party, it is the defining cleavage Electorally. electorally.
0: Is it a conscious cleavage, though? I mean, do, do, to what extent do people see it as a generational uh, divide uh, versus ideological or issue-based or anything along those lines? Um, and, you know, do, do people see this, this conversation that's online about generational differences? Is that playing out uh, more broadly?
1: I'm not quite sure how to break this down and find isolate the causal factor, which is so often our impulse. But the argument is that these things are very correlated today that age and policy preference and media style are all very correlated. And so do people self-consciously go into the voting booth and say, which one is the millennial candidate? I want to vote for the millennial. I would say probably not, but do they consume media in a context in which the millennial is likely to be producing political content that relates to them and which they encounter in their day-to-day experience? Probably. Yes. So, there are many pathways by which this generational divide can play out in differential preferences Uh, the consciousness angle is i think real Uh, i think there are lots of research on many different identities and how people self-identifying with those different identity groups affects their behavior i think this is not in the top three on those dimensions though
0: and, and is there any sign of the kind of analog of negative partisanship that this is that, that it's not just people identifying with their own de- generation, but identifying as in opposition to another?
1: I, I did find that younger people, I think, I think Gen Z and millennials, were more likely to oppose a politician who said that they would prioritize issues that the older generations cared about. So if there is, it seems to be in the resentment towards the old direction.
0: So you also uh, find um, that public policy uh, is uh, oriented toward helping uh, older uh, people, um, and uh, that's of course a a a repeated uh, finding. Um, To to what extent is that explainable by the relative uh, power and engagement of, of the generations?
1: So the welfare spending in the US for a long time has a higher percentage of it has gone to the elderly than in any other Western democracy. And largely, this is because of lack of welfare spending on the non-elderly. But uh, as the elderly take up much more and more of the population and they live longer and longer, this spending becomes quite important. So the most obvious case is about Social Security. So Doug Arnold has a new book about reforming Social Security, which is great and which I based much of this argument on. But it has been clearly, in terms of predicting the future, the actuarial tables behind Social Security payments could not be more set in stone. And it has been clear for decades that some kind of reform will have to happen to deal with uh, demographic shift. And Congress has, for decades, put off a relatively small increase in the Social Security tax, which would have bit into the baby boomers when they were... In the workforce and making money, and have them pay into Social Security the amount that they would need to in order to guarantee the full benefits. So, as a result, the liabilities of Social Security are greater than what will be taken in at the current rates. And what will happen is at some point, the lines will cross, the amount of money coming in will be less than the money going out, and either they're going to cut. The social security payments to the retired baby boomers or they will have to increase the payroll taxes on the younger generations who are still working and it's not going to be the first one (laughs) because of the power of the uh, older generations politically
0: so they they might be able to stop change, um, but I guess are they responsible for the the initial disparity? So um, you know we might think of uh, lots of other reasons why uh, public policy is more geared toward helping the the old. Um, but of course there is a story that the AARP as an organization and uh, other uh, generational political influence kinds of stories uh, did matter for this. So. Should we connect the two Uh, boomers dominate politics and policy uh, as a result is uh, is geared toward their interests? Yeah. So policy
1: is always geared towards the people who vote the most and have the most influence and are members of organizations with power influence. And that has always been older people on average. Um, So sure, that, that effect is what's caused the system we have today. To exist but even when the baby boomers were not older people when they were in the prime of their working age we could have solved the social security problem by raising taxes on them and we did not because of their power because that they are a demographically politically powerful group um so i think these two these two effects are are both these both mechanisms both operate and that soon they'll both be operating even more in the same direction
0: so uh, you, of course, uh, study uh, changes in technology uh, frequently, and uh, that is probably the most um, the most pointed to explanation for these uh, generational uh, lines. Um, to, to what extent should we be connecting uh, changes in technology use as the primary way that generations develop? I think to a large
1: extent, uh, I think that media technology is you know increasingly alienated world and in our world in which media technology is more available than ever at every moment of our waking lives, clearly a major force for everything that happens. And as I said earlier, the fact of social media allowing younger generations to make their own media is a kind of novel phenomenon in, in history, in terms of the breakdown of intergenerational contact and transmission of, of everything. So I do think the media is uh, A very important part of the story,
0: and I mean, I guess any any uh, what is there an argument on the other side that this is this this is sort of an overhyped version? Um, As you said, you know that the ones that really jump out are explained by pure birth rate. (laughs) That is, uh, they were born with a lot of people um, similar to themselves, Um, so that. That seems less consistent with, well, it was about the the exact, you know, media and communication technology that they had at their disposal.
1: For sure. So when it comes to the kind of argument I'm trying to make, kind of story I'm trying to tell here, it is, these are both mechanisms that exist. I believe that. If, if when when we talk or when you read one article, it's going to emphasize one of those mechanisms. I'm saying they both exist. The The question we might want to ask is... Is one of them 40% explained 40% of the variance and the other explained 30% of the variance or vice versa? And I don't think that's something we can answer with the data we have. So I think these are both mechanisms that exist. I think these are powerful mechanisms that explain things going on in society. Uh, media technology changing is going to be a powerful mechanism when media technology changes, but not when it doesn't. And so there's not like a long like a, a, a total permanent answer to this question um, in terms of, you know, if, if the birth rate were constant for 100 years and immigration rates were constant, then demography wouldn't matter. But it does right now. And uh, that's a, explains a significant amount of the variance. And so we should think about that when we explain what's going on in society in America today.
0: So as you mentioned, the talk of the generation gap uh, was very high in the 1960s um, when, at least politically, uh, the differences were were not as strong between the generations as they are now. So wh- why did we have that conversation then? Uh, and how is it different than the conversation we're having today?
1: The baby boomer generation was a historical anomaly in, in every way. So they were so different from the generations that came before them. In a way that was obvious to the commentators at the time, just just very obvious. And so, the fact of their rebellion—it was a, a similar story, but again different than Gen Z and social media today. The fact of their the wealth in society allowing them more youthful freedoms was somewhat novel, right? And so, so previous generations had not had that sense of adolescence and that sense of economic security that the boomers had which is what allowed them to create a kind of revolutionary new ideology or way of being in the world emphasizing personal freedom um, and the various social constructions downstream of that so that is i think the continuity in american society had been fairly strong in terms of how generations related to each other, but the baby boomer generation was the first in which the generation gap in terms of how people in the same family experienced the world was so starkly different.
0: But it it was also, I mean, it was also a caricature, right? The, uh, the, there weren't that many people in college at the time when the image of the baby boomers was that they all were in college. Um, the, how similar is that, I guess, the caricature of the baby boomers at the time to the, the caricatures we have today of younger generations?
1: I think that the mass media technology at the time was much more responsible for the sense of generational unity. Um, and so the idea of rock and roll music and their use was something that everyone experienced. The Beatles, everyone had the Beatles and their parents didn't. And so this is what created a sense of community among young people college and then the vietnam the vietnam war was the big division within the boomer generation so this division plays out in american politics today the mccain Kerry election was primarily about vietnam which again speaks to the power of the baby boomers um, so short there are stark divisions in how individual baby boomers experience the world but on the other so if we think about identities mattering insofar as they overlap, the baby boomers also had a far higher degree of identity overlap. So they were the least racially diverse generation in American history. Um, If you think about the racialization and whiteness construction for immigrants like uh, Irish and Jewish immigrants who eventually became white, it, it were initially racialized. The baby boomers are the, the, the much more culturally homogenous on the other identity grounds than previous or subsequent generations, which also contributed to their sense of a shared generational identity. And again, this was just like today is something the media imposed on them. And everyone was talking about them as a, the census. This is the first generation in American history to be defined as a generation by the census. So of course the media affects how we think about the world, right? Um, So this was fed back into their self-conception and then became a force in American politics.
0: So how should we think about age effects, especially in predicting what's going to happen uh, next? Um, Should we expect that there will be an age effect on both um, participation and on uh, moves rightward? That is, uh, should we expect the younger generations to start participating more uh, and start moving rightward either with age or with, various adulting changes like having children owning a house that might have been delayed more than for previous generations
1: yeah i mean age effects are of these are very well documented and so i just don't think there's any reason to think they would not occur here also how much of age is a age itself versus these life cycle things that's that's harder to uh disentangle but i think it's definitely both in terms of what you're defining and then i did Try to get into the latest research on this long-standing question do people become more conservative as they get older is a myth that goes back to thomas, Je- thomas jefferson was making this joke about if someone is not a democrat at 15 then they are not good but if they're still a democrat at 20 then they're also not good which speaks to how different the life cycle was at the time um but yes this idea is, is a, it's so culturally ubiquitous that It's almost as if being old is being conservative it doesn't mean anything else and so when we try to impose our measures on do you want the tax rate to go down or whatever our specific conception of conservatism is if they don't match up to the narrative that everyone believes to be true that people become more conservative as they age so much the worse for our measures
0: well, in the contemporary uh, debate, it's it's pretty important uh, because the if you just take the people who uh, run analyses saying, well, let's just assume what happens uh, to changes in the voting population over time. Here are all of the twenty states that are going to move toward uh, Democrats uh, in in this year, if nothing else changes. Um, that's very dependent on there not being a conservatizing, uh, effect of, of age. Um, but the response has been that so far there hasn't been much one, uh, for millennials, for example. Um, and the response to that has been, well, all of these things that make the millennials different, they're, uh, marrying and having kids later, they're having housing, permanent housing later are delaying those, uh, th- those effects. Um, so uh, to me, it's important to <laughs> work that out if we're trying to, uh, evaluate, uh, this, this story, uh, at least of the likelihood that these generations will, will continue to matter in the way that they have. So, but by conservatizing, you mean voting Republican? Uh, I, that certainly is one outcome of conservatizing influence, but I, uh, I, I guess I'm not that persuaded that, you know, picking an issue is, is the best way to assess that. If, if we are going to assess their likelihood of voting Republican, eventually, um, you know, we're going to want to look at factors that are related to whether they uh, vote Republican, which includes more general measures of ideology.
1: My, my story here is something like, in terms of predicting the future, the boomer Ballast perspective is helpful from these genera- sorry demographic inevitability stories because it says, yes, that's right, ultimately but everyone is wrong about when it's going to happen. People are like, why hasn't it happened yet? And I say that boomer power hasn't peaked yet. So if we look at the number of people who turn 65 in 2023, next year will be larger than ever before or ever again in American history. And these people have disproportionate economic power. They're going to have disproportionate free time to consume political media and get involved in politics. They are already the ones running the two political parties and they're their power in mainstream political institutions is only going to increase over the next five years, maybe 10. And I think that why the world feels so weird is because the institutions that we have are preventing the revolutionary internet technology and younger generations values from actually affecting things in terms of how the country is run. And so there's this giant tension between the fact of boomer ballast being amplified by all of these other factors and young people just feeling alienated from the entire process that means that i think that a lot of the longitudinal studies about issue position change are are probably not that relevant to this period and so as a result i would say that more likely is the party that is going to win in the 2030s is the one that is first able to fully embrace younger generations and their issues and so if they can kick that start that process of building partisan loyalty among younger generations who are largely alienated from the process entirely that's going to be the story of who ultimately comes out ahead after the baby boomers eventually see power and i think part of this is going to be a, a a realignment story i think that the coalitions as they exist in terms of the issues and the, the groups that matter most of those groups are not going to exist We talked about the gradient the correlation between age and religion now the religious the religious component of the conservative coalition has been very important, but the number of religious people in younger generations is dramatically lower. And so this is just a less important factor in society, and thus will have less targeting power within any kind of uh, coalition.
0: How much does the U.S. uh, stand out in generational politics? Obviously, the institutions are different, uh, but many of the forces we've been talking about should be globally, or at least globally, in in the rich world. Um, So... To what extent do we have the same generational conceptualization uh, and impacts elsewhere?
1: I think it's very different. I think that the UK has a sense of the baby boomers. I think that other genera- other countries, Germany, for example, had a very different historical experience in the living memory of many. And so that generational breakdown exists there, but it's very different. So I actually don't think this is going to generalize very well at all. I think it's specific to all of these factors that were unique in the United States at the time. And I think it is a useful story in many other places to see how the internet empowering young people plays out according to their demographic, economic, political backgrounds.
0: How so, has this, how, how is this, um, this work you've been doing on Generations uh, likely to impact your other work on uh, use of technology and its impact?
1: Yeah, so I'm focusing a lot more on novel political platforms which target young people and trying to understand the style. So I think it's a truism at this point that Representative AOC has a very different way of using Twitter and that younger millennials in Congress do so in a very different way. And I'm trying to figure out how to operationalize that and see how that plays out to try to update the idea of home style to be digital home style, to see how younger generations feel connected to younger politicians who use the internet in a way that is relatable to them and how that affects this process of political socialization and issue transmission.
0: There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and part of the Democracy Group Network. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, I recommend checking out the following episodes, Racial Protest, Violence, and Backlash, How Marriage and Inequality Reinforce Partisan Polarization, How Online Media Polarizes and Encourages Voters, How Rich White Residents and Interest Groups Rule Local Politics, and Anti-Immigration Politics is California's Past, the Republicans' Future. Thanks to Kevin Munger for joining me. Please check out The Generation Gap and then listen in next time.